Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Language. Today I'm talking to Professor Peter Trudgill about his book, Sociolinguistic Typology, Social Determinants of Linguistic Complexity. In the book, Professor Trudgill argues that human societies at different times and places produce different kinds of language, and considers the influence of different language contact scenarios on linguistic structure. In this interview, we discuss the implications of these ideas for certain long-held views, such as the view that all languages are equally complex, and the view that processes operative in the present should be used to explain the past. We also discuss the role of language acquisition in all of this, and how Peter's ideas can be applied at other linguistic levels such as syntax. I'm talking to Peter Trudgill about his book Social Linguistic Typology, Social Determinants of Linguistic Complexity, in which he explores the relationship between linguistic structure and human societies of different times and places. Peter, my first question is, uh, you mentioned in the preface that this book is, is first referenced in 1986 as Trudgill forthcoming. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about how the book came about? Yes, I suppose I can. Um, really, my interest in this topic goes back a very long time. Um, as I recall, um, I began my professional university career as a lecturer in Reading uh, in the Linguistic Science Department there in 1970. And I think my third ever publication was something I was asked to do more or less immediately after I joined the department there. um, I joined the department in 1970, and I think in 1971, um, a book came out edited by Del Himes, which was quite a, a landmark at the time. And it was a book which was called, if I remember um, exactly, published by Cambridge University Press, 1971. And it was called Pigeonization and Creolization of Languages. Mm-hmm. And I was asked, um, I think it's probably by Frank Palmer, when it came out in 1971, if I would write a review of it, which was, you know, quite an honour for me. I was only 26 and I'd only just started uh, teaching. And I think that was one of the most fascinating books I ever had to read. The um, the review itself didn't come out until 1972 in, in as I said, the Journal of Linguistics. But I was fascinated with the idea about uh, languages being simplified um, as a result of uh, adult language contact. There are articles in there by luminaries like uh, Delheims himself, Charles Ferguson, uh, John Gumpers, and so on. And so I started thinking about this. Uh, then, at around the same time, I acquired an MPhil student called... Peter Mulhoys, or Peter, he really is, um, who's now a professor of linguistics in Australia, whose MPhil was on um, pigeonization and simplification of languages. I thought this was a brilliantly interesting topic. I hadn't known anything about, you know, Jamaican Creole or contact languages generally. So then I started uh, thinking about this whole process of simplification. And of course, it tied in quite nicely with one of those things that we were always taught when I started learning linguistics. They say, don't they, that if you can remember the 1960s, you you weren't there. But uh, I was there. And I do remember starting uh, linguistics at Cambridge and then at uh, Edinburgh. And I remember these um, mantras that they came up with, these sort of corrective attitudes um, that they necessarily had for us as beginning students, like, you know, all dialects are equally structured and correct and all languages are highly complex. You know, they needed to think that, they needed to say that because at the time uh, there was a strong view in the outside world anyway that some languages were just better than others and more complex. So 
Um, all languages are highly complex, but they typically in those days went a bit further and said all languages are equally complex. And uh, a number of linguists you know, more or less wrote that. Uh, Hockett certainly wrote that in his introductory text. So there on the one hand was the orthodox linguistics view that all languages were equally complex. And yet here were these guys who had actually gone out and studied real life languages in the field writing about simplification. So in my youthful way, I started thinking, well, you know, if a language can be simplified, that means that at one period of time, it's simpler than it was at an earlier period of time. And if the same language can be more or less complex at the same at different times, well, then different languages must be more or less complex at the same time. Mm. So see what I mean. So I wasn't buying this idea then uh, about all languages being equally complex. And I actually wrote a paper uh, which I circulated around my colleagues at Reading. And they were very skeptical about the whole thing. Um, but I, I persevered with it. Um, and I actually presented it at the International Conference of Historical Linguistics at uh, Stanford in uh, 1979. As I recall, um, you know, I finished writing the review in 1972, 1973. I was thinking about it. I actually finished writing the paper itself in 1977, and then I presented it in 1979. And, you know, I put forward the idea that some languages were more complex than others. And uh, if you were given uh, three months to learn a language, and your life depended on it, uh, you would be very foolish to choose Faroese rather than <laughs> Norwegian. Um, and the, the paper turned out to be, you know, controversial. I mean, I, I remember getting support from Henning Anderson and C.J. Bailey. Sally Thomason was also there. You know, and these were big, important people as far as I was concerned. Mm. Um, Marianne Bethune was there. I remember talking to her about it. But anyway, there it was. It was um, I presented it in 1979, and there was so much skepticism about the whole thing that I didn't do much with it for quite a while. But I did publish it in my book um, that uh, Blackwell's kind, kindly brought out in 1983. Uh, on dialect, a collection of my papers. They were mostly papers which had already been published, but this was a, an unpublished paper, and I called it Language Contact and Language Change on the Rise of the Creoloid, where I expand, you know, I, I didn't exactly introduce this term creoloid, I got it from somewhere else, but um, my idea was that there were quite a lot of languages around which, if you compared them with an earlier stage of the language, looked a bit like a creole, but they had never gone through a stage of um, being a pigeon. So that's where that idea first appeared. So and a very long time ago. So that was 1983 when it came out. So when I uh, was writing my book on dialects in contact, which, as you say, came out in 1986, I mentioned uh, this topic and this idea. I mean, I was really writing about dialect contact there, obviously. Mm. But I talked about the notion of simplification in that context and related it to simplification due to language contact and referred to a book that I was uh, planning to write. It was going to be a kind of companion volume to Dialects in Contact. It was going to be called Dialects in Isolation, where I was going to argue that just as you get simplification in uh, dialect contact situations, so in conditions of, as it were, dialect isolation, you were probably going to get complexification. So I'd already then had the idea that if languages are going to complexify, Basically, they need a, a sort of social situation where you don't have too much adult language contact. Mm. So that was the germs of the idea. But it took me so long to uh, read all the stuff and think about all the stuff that I didn't really get around to, to writing the book until about uh, 15 or even 20 years later. And um, here it is. Uh, you mentioned this idea of the equicomplexity hypothesis, and yeah. and as you suggested, I think it's kind of a something of a sacred cow in in modern linguistics. Um, it's something that a lot of people have assumed, and I wanted to know your thoughts on why exactly it is that we have this hypothesis. Why have linguists assumed it axiomatically for such a long time? Well, I mean, I think it was originally it was a a kind of propaganda thing. 
you know, in, there was a uh, an atmosphere in the outside world. There still is to a certain extent. There are still people who talk about primitive languages and uh, talk about um, languages in small, faraway communities as if they were uh, backward and not nearly as complex as, you know, wonderfully uh, complex languages like Latin or superbly logical languages like French or mm. marvelously adaptable languages like English. There's a lot of ignorance out there. I read a novel by... John Grisham, by mistake, <laughs> some years ago, in, in which he actually demonstrated a, a group of indigenous Amazonian people as going around talking to each other in a series of grunts. And I actually complained to the publisher about it. So there, there is a view that some languages are better than others, and some languages are more complex than others, and that some languages and some dialects are actually more suitable for abstract thought and so on. I mean, this was a vicious idea that was propagated by educational psychologists, particularly in the United States, in the 1970s that uh, Bill LeBeau spent quite a lot of time uh, arguing against. They said that, you know, these psychologists said that no wonder these African-American children don't do well in school because they're, they're linguistically deprived by their dialect, which doesn't enable them to think properly. So, you know, I think it was very important for linguists to say that all languages are highly complex. And that was very important for us as beginning students, undergraduate and postgraduate students of linguistics to be told that. I think, you know, okay, we were, I hope, highly intelligent and interested and concerned people, but we needed to be told that. Just as it was a tremendous boost to be, have it made clear that all dialects and accents were, from a linguistic point of view, um, equal. So there it was, all languages are highly complex, but as you say, it went a bit further than that. And it was a very widespread view that all languages were not just highly complex, they were all equally complex. And, you know, we can call that uh, the equi-complexity hypothesis. And the way it worked, as I understand it, it was kind of the invariance of linguistic complexity hypothesis. The idea was that if you had simplification in one part of a language, it would be inevitably compensated for by complexification somewhere else. So the, um, I mean, I have to say good things about Charles Hockett's 1958 book, A Course in Modern Linguistics, because it was the course of that book that I got into linguistics in the first place. I happened to see it lying around on the table in the library, Modern Languages Library at, at Cambridge University, and picked it up and thought, well, this is for me. Because you have to remember that in those days, I'm talking about the uh, 1960s, as I say, we didn't even know there was such a thing as linguistics. Yeah. I would certainly have chosen to study if I had, but I didn't know. And um, Charles, I'm actually, I've actually got the uh, quote here from Hockett. He wrote, all languages have an equivalent degree of complexity. The total grammatical complexity of any language, counting both morphology and syntax, is about the same as any other. And he did actually go on to say, you know, if the morphology complexifies, uh, or if the morphology simplifies, the syntax will complexify to compensate for that. Um, Rulon Wells, who was somebody that all linguistic students had to read in those days, said, um, one can isolate the complexity of a language in phonemics, in morphophonemics, in tactics, etc. But these isolable properties may hang together in such a way that the total complexity of a language is approximately the same for all languages. And even more recently, Bob Dixon, you know, a linguist who I admire enormously, has written in the last few years, it is a finding of modern linguistics that all languages are roughly equal in terms of overall complexity. So that, that I take it, was what we were saying for outside consumption. Mm. Um, this was the face that linguists were presenting to a public who took it for granted that some languages were, were, were indeed more complex than others, and that made them better in some way. Having said that, though, it's quite clear that uh, there are quite a number of linguists who do actually agree with that. And going around talking about my book, over the last three or four years, I've actually found that. Um, it's quite interesting. I helped to edit a book um, with David Gill and Jeff Sampson um, on uh, the complexity uh, of equi-complexity of languages. And Jan Tadia Forlund wrote a nice review of it where he said, but, you know, was this book really necessary? You, you 
very nicely done, but surely you are pushing at an open door. Surely everybody knows that mm-hmm. all languages aren't equally complex. Mm-hmm. Preaching to the converted, as it were. Exactly. And yet, on the other hand, there are um, perfectly eminent linguists who have been raised their eyebrows when I've said this and said, well, surely all languages are equally complex. So I guess there's been mixed feelings out there. So partly propaganda, which would explain, you know, which would answer your question, but partly also because this article of faith has actually become the truth for many people. And of course, obviously all languages are enormously complex, but I think once you start thinking about it, it's, there are all sorts of ways in which languages can genuinely be shown to be more complex than other languages. Hmm. What, according to you, then, are the main reasons for for questioning this equi-complexity hypothesis, for doing away with it? What are the, the crucial arguments? Yes, right. Well, I mean, I, I think it is true that if you get rid of certain sorts of complexity, there will be compensation. And, of course, it depends what you mean by complexity. But if I can go back to that point I made, and I did actually write this somewhere, I think about if you had three months to learn a language, you wouldn't choose Faroese mm. uh, or Icelandic or, or Navajo. The, the, the angle on complexity that I've been using is what Ersten Dahl has called L2 difficulty. So I've taken uh, linguistic complexity to be more or less synonymous with or at, less very close, at least very closely related to difficulty for adult learners. Now, the whole, you know, the critical period hypothesis is very important here. You may not accept uh, that critical period is is, um, the right way of putting it, but I think it's obvious to anybody who's lived in the world for 20 years or so that young children are enormously better at learning languages in an untutored way than adults are. Mm. Well, the debate seems to be uh, mostly about the, the details, really, I would say, whether it's a, a sharp cut-off point or more of a tail-off. But, but the general intuition, as you say, everyone, I think, agrees on that. Yes, I mean, so critical threshold may not be the right term, but critical period is, will probably be less controversial. Mm. So, by and large, um, children are brilliant language learners and adults are lousy language learners, although, of course, there are some exceptions. Um, so some things then are much more difficult for adults to acquire than others. It doesn't matter that they're difficult to acquire as far as children are concerned because children will learn anything. Uh, as I always say, you know, children will even learn Polish. <laughs> and there are, you know, there are tens of millions of people who can demonstrate the truth of this. But some things are fairly obviously difficult to learn. Um, grammatical gender, for example. Because what you've got to do in a language with, say, three genders is just sit down and learn which words have which gender. Because gender, for the most part, is arbitrary. So it's difficult to remember. I mean, there are some predictive things that you can do, but it's arbitrary. It's hard to remember. The older you get, it's hard, the harder it is to remember things. And actually, there's also the point about grammatical gender that it's hardly worth it. What does it buy you? Uh, not very much. If you get your gender wrong, well, people will know you're not a native speaker, but they know that already. So it's, it's a question of remembering. Um, irregular uh, arbitrariness is difficult, L2 difficult. Um, irregularity is also very difficult um, because you just, once again, you have to learn uh, from scratch without any kind of uh, help from. Um, there's, no, there's nothing to help you predict there what's going on. Another argument against equi-complexity is that some languages have got a lot more redundancy than others. This is also a slightly heretical thing to say for some people, but all languages have redundancy. Um, grammatical gender you know, is not necessary. You can do without it. Um, all languages and all speakers repeat information from time to time. So grammatical agreement is a good example of that. If a noun in French is feminine, why do you have to bother to have a feminine definite article and a feminine form of the adjective? That's just redundant. Hmm. So that's more stuff to remember. And you could make things easier for yourself by just getting rid of it as an adult learner. And that's what uh, people do very often in adult language learning. 
particularly in untutored situations. And that's why, of course, in Creole languages, you don't have any of that stuff or not so much of that stuff. So if you compare if you compare a Creole language with its source language, you will see, I mean, it's fairly obvious, at least at the level of morphology and morphosyntax, that it's a lot, it genuinely is a lot simpler. It's easier to learn and it's easier to remember and it's easier to use as an adult. So that's the sort of argument that I think we're able to use. Um, we, can, we can say, for example, also that uh, morphological categories are a problem. So I mean expressing doing grammatical stuff or doing semantic stuff by means of grammatical categories rather than lexically um, or in a, in a more analytic way is, is a problem. So particularly in inflectional languages, say, in the fact that you know Old English used to have a dative case, which any adult learning Old English as a foreign language would have had to acquire and remember, was greatly simplified by getting rid of the, the dative case and using a preposition like to instead, which you know, always works. So that's the sort of argument that I was that I was using, and that I've been uh, that I've been thinking about. Hmm, thanks. So, uh, in terms of this notion of L two difficulty, it sounds so far. Uh, more like a psycholinguistic typology than a sociolinguistic typology, because this acquisition, this differential ability to acquire languages, is the crucial divider. Where does the sociolinguistics come into it? Well, it's sociolinguistic because, generally speaking, when adults learn a language and don't do it very well and end up simplifying the language, that doesn't have any implications for the language as such. It just has implications for the language of the speaker. Uh, the language of the of the learner, and normally uh, the fact that adults are learning a particular language has no implications whatsoever for the the community of native speakers of that language, the language itself, if you like, as it's transmitted from one generation to another of native speakers is not influenced at all by the fact that there's some guy out there who's not learning it properly. Um, if you see what I mean, so it's sociolinguistic because if there's going to be any um, profound consequences for the language as a whole, as it's passed down from one generation to another. It has to be in a whole social situation where in some way the imperfect learning that the adults are doing has to get into the speech of native speakers. So, I mean, if to, to just take the case I mentioned, you know, the, the dative case in Old English was lost. Well, was that due to language contact? Well, maybe it was, because that's a typical sort of simplification that adults will do. Well, what non-native speakers were there around learning Old English? Well, some people say it was the Vikings. Other people say, and I, I'm, I tend to believe this, that it was the indigenous inhabitants of uh, this country. Um, so speakers of uh, Celtic, Britonic, who I would say fairly obviously learnt Old English on a rather large scale. The, the argument, of course, is a good deal more complex than this. And indeed, on such a large scale that, uh, and indeed there's evidence that to the north of England at the certain periods of history, they outnumbered the Anglo-Saxon overlords quite considerably. So that the non-native Old English um, became very influential and became passed on to following generations as native Old English. It's a bit like if you think about the development of Afrikaans, Afrikaans is a simplified form of Dutch. It was simplified by language contact. And, and uh, of course, there are uh, many modern Afrikaans speakers are descended genetically as well as culturally from native speakers of 17th century Dutch. So why did they simplify it? Well, because there was just far more people who were speaking it as a non-native language, that in the end, the whole community was influenced. So people ended up being native speakers of, a, of an originally non-native variety. Hmm. So that, that's, that's great. So that's why it's, it's sociolinguistics. You, you need the particular sociolinguistic matrix. You need a particular society for those things to happen. 
On that note, you mentioned that uh, you you flag up that in the literature in sociolinguistics and in the literature on typology, there are very often two diametrically opposed views expressed on what contact will do to linguistic complexity, at least among those authors who believe that linguistic complexity can change at all. Um, could you just outline that, that paradox, that um, discrepancy, and how you would resolve it? That's absolutely fascinating. Um... And it's very um, gives you lots of insights, I think, into academic sociology. Um, and I only gradually became aware of it, and um, I sort of kicked myself for not understanding what was going on earlier. But for many decades, it had become obvious to people in sociolinguistics, particularly people working on language contact, like the Creolists, but also a certain number of historical linguists who focused on language contact, people like Jim Milroy, for example, and people working on dialect contact, it became obvious to them that language contact means simplification. So very often if you see simplification as a change taking place in the language, you look for language contact as an explanation for why it happened. And that was our general feeling. So we had, you know, long since abandoned the idea that all languages are equally complex. Sociolinguists believed that language contact means simplification. So when one day I picked up a Bernard Comrie sent me the draft of a paper he was writing about what happens to grammatical inflectional systems in language contact situations, I was expecting him to say, well, they disappear or they become simplified. And in, it's a brilliant paper, as you can imagine, by Bernard, but he doesn't even mention that possibility. And I thought, well, what's, what's going on here? And then I realized that I'd been at conferences where the sociolinguists had agreed with what I was saying, or I'd agreed with what another sociolinguist had been saying about contact, and yet there were these other people in the audience who were saying, no, 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 that's not our experience. Language contact leads to complexification. And I probably hadn't been listening properly, I think it was actually Sally Thomason who actually made me stop and listen at one point. There were uh, the typologists had taken it for granted that language contact means complexification, because what happens, they said, is that in, for example, most obviously in a Sprachbund situation, people acquire grammatical categories from other neighbouring languages and add them to their own languages. So. I don't know whether this is a good example or not, but let's say Bulgarian acquires post-post definite articles because it's been in contact with um, Albanian and or Bulgarian and or Romanian over a period of several centuries. It used not to have definite articles. Now it does. Okay, it's complexified as a result of contact. So, well, I start thinking, well, how can that be? You know, who's right? Are the sociolinguists right when they say that contact equals simplification? Or are the typologists right when they say contact equals complexification? Of course, it, it immediately became clear, or more or less immediately became clear, that they're both right. It depends on the type of the contact. And so then I started going around talking about that and saying, well, to simplify, if the contact predominantly involves short-term contact uh, with adult or adolescent learners who don't do a very good job and don't have much access to the language they're learning, then you're going to get simplification. If, on the other hand, it's long-term co-territorial contact, people living together in the same geographical area for long periods of time, sometimes very long periods of time, then what's going to happen is that these people are going to be become bilingual. Um, they learn the, the other language or languages as children, so they do it properly, if that's the right word to use. Uh, and so they start transferring categories and constructions from one language to another. And their native language, if we can put it like this, acquires more stuff um, from neighboring languages. So they end up being more complex because they've added uh, categories and structures. So it's additive complexification. And when I went around saying that, people said, oh, yeah, <laughs> and uh, which is precisely what I'd said. And Laura Wright at Cambridge very kindly started calling this the Trudgill Insight. Um, you know, it, it depends on the nature of the contact. There are two major types of contact, and they have different 
very different consequences. I was a bit embarrassed about having it called the Trudgill Insight because I thought, well, it's so bleeding obvious that uh, I'm embarrassed that I didn't think about it before. How do you feel about Trudgill's Law? Trudgill's Law? Ah. <laughs> well, yes, I mean, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, social linguists are not very happy about laws because we're very aware of variability and uh, complexity of situations and so on. But uh, somebody else pointed out, of course, that is the point about <laughs> insights that um, they're, they're typically seeing things which everybody knew but hadn't really sort of noticed before. So, yeah, there. If you want to call it the Trudgill Insight, I don't mind. Although I would like to say that I think, you know, Thomason and Kaufman had already realized this, but they hadn't ever expressed it in such a sort of simple-minded way as I've expressed it. Uh, you know, I'm just a simple dialectologist. I can't do anything except express things simply. Well, I'll hold off on calling it Trudgill's Law for the time being anyway. Um, but that raises an interesting point, the point about insight here, um, which I think is an interesting feature of this book compared to a lot of other work in sociolinguistics and in typology, which often depends very crucially on counting things. Yes. Um, now, in this book, you don't do any of that. Are you not worried by that? Do you think other people should or shouldn't be worried by that? Well, I mean, I, I say, as you will perhaps recall, at the at the front of the book in, in, in the preface, that I'm not, uh, I quite deliberately am not counting anything. Um, I've said this book, I've got the book in front of me, uh, the book contains ideas but no statistics. It deals with tendencies and possibilities, but there are no tests of significance. It contains data, but there is no random sampling. Uh, and I use terms like large and small in a relative way without defining what I mean by them, because I'm actually not sure about this. So this is quite a deliberate ploy on my part. I'm suggesting things. I have actually used the word hypothesis sometimes, I think. But if you want to suggest that these are not hypotheses, they are in no way testable, I wouldn't demur. Um, I don't believe that these things are particularly countable. Um, if people want to do that, uh, and there are a number of, quite a number of younger scholars, all male as far as I can work out for some reason, who are keen to, to test out my hypotheses by counting, by going to corporate and counting. The trouble is that some of the things I mention are countable and some of them are easily like I mentioned population size as being a determinant. So so quite a number of people have tried to relate some of my ideas to the population size of a particular community. But I never wanted them to do that because um, I don't think you can take the social factors I've talked about in isolation. I haven't just talked about population size. I've also talked about the degree of contact, as we've just been mentioning. I've talked about the degree of stability. I've talked about social network. I've talked about the amount of shared information in a community. And unless people are actually going to try and measure social stability, I mean, you could do it if you wanted to, but I don't particularly see the point. But if people want, other people want, and I'm not going to do it, certainly, uh, but if other people want to do that, well, I'm, I'm fine with that. I'll sit back and see what they come up with. I mean, I, what, I, what I say in, in, in the preface, uh, as you will have seen, is that I'm not actually trying to prove anything. I'm, I'm trying to, I think what I say in, in, the, in, the, in the book is that I've allowed myself the, the luxury of wondering about things. So I'm, I'm saying here, this is what I'm wondering about. People have said, well, it sounds, uh, a lot of people said, well, yeah, maybe you're probably right. If they want to go and check it, that would be nice. But I'm, I'm not altogether sure that it's worth it. And here's another reason why I'm not sure it's worth it, or um, another reason why I think it would be difficult. And that has to do with sampling. There are some linguistic typologists who, as you know, like to count things and like to com compare languages around the world so that they can look at correlations and say what's rare and what's common and so on. And because they don't want to obviously take data from all the known languages of the world, um, they like to do sampling, intelligent sampling, which allows for bias. So they try and take out aerial bias, and because we know that languages spoken in the same area tend to be uh, similar by taking languages from all different parts of the world and they like to take out genetic bias because we know that languages which are related to one another uh, tend to be uh, rather similar um, and therefore allow for 
a large number of different language families equally represented and a large number of geographical areas equally represented in the sample. So that's good. But one thing they can't do anything about is chronological bias. Because my perspective supposes that modern languages are may not be at all representative of how languages have been for more for most of human history. If you see what I mean. So um, what you would really want to do is allow for chronological bias as well and look at languages from Paleolithic societies um, and take in information from there as well. And we can't do that. But, you know, if people want to, if people want to count things, they can. But that's not what I'm going to do. Uh, for a start, I'm a bit too old to do that now. You know, I, it's good to take a lot of time. So I let some young people do it if they want to. Right. I wanted to follow up that point on the idea that languages of the present are not representative of, of the way that languages might have been further back in human history. And and I wanted to ask, what do you think is going to happen in the future? Um, you hint at this in the book, but uh, just to spell that out in some more detail. Yes. Well, obviously, I mean, this has to do with the uniformitarian hypothesis or the uniformitarian principle which uh, as you'll probably know better than me is basically an uh, an idea from uh, geology and the physical scientists sciences the uniformitarian hypothesis that says knowledge of processes that operated in the past can be inferred by observing ongoing processes in the past uh, sorry in the present but people like me anyway, um, became familiar with it from um, Bill LeBeau's writing, and notably his 1972 book, Sociolinguistic Patterns. And what LeBeau says is that languages in the past, language structures in the past, must have been subjected to precisely the same constraints as language structures today, and the mechanisms of linguistic change that you know we see operating today must be precisely the same as those which operated in the past. Uh, and so that leads him to the methodological principle of using the present to explain the past. So you can't try and explain past changes by resorting to explanations that wouldn't work for you know, modern languages. So, I mean, you, for example, you can't reconstruct a proto-Indo-European consonant system, which would be typologically bizarre and uh, unacceptable to 21st century uh, linguist. So, and I, I accept that. I mean, I, I accept that the human language faculty is the same the world over. And that's one of the points of saying that all languages are equally complex, isn't it? To make the, the point to the, the general public that uh, we've all got an equally, we've all got an equivalent language faculty. So, even if that's not exactly true. So, the human language faculty is the same the world over and always has been ever since humans became fully human. But you know, what about if languages um, are influenced by the structure of the societies in which they're spoken? And of course, what my what all this work is about is saying that that is true. They are influenced to a certain extent by the societies where they're spoken. Um, and I've been in trying to investigate the extent and the nature of that uh, influence. So insofar as the characteristics of individual languages are due to the, you know, the language faculty, there can't be any questioning about the uniformitarian principle. But if social structure can influence language structure, then that common faculty will produce different types of language structure in different places and at different moments in human history. And that would mean that the linguistic present is not like the linguistic past at all. Uh, and so the methodology of using the present to explain the past would be, I suppose, less useful the further back in time you go. Um, now, uh, linguists, of course, as you know, uh, uh, absolutely agreed about uh, how old human language is, uh, definitely somewhere hmm. between 100,000 and 200,000 years old, um, give or take another 50,000 years. But um, whatever it is, uh, it, that means that nearly all the linguistic past took place in uh, Neolithic societies or pre-Neolithic societies. Um, so, you know, 
let's say that human languages were spoken in pre-Neolithic or Neolithic societies for at least 95% of their history. So I suggest that that means that there are lots of obvious respects in which the structure of Paleolithic societies were different from our own. Most obviously, the demography was very different, and I suppose because of that, the social network structures. And in our day, population size and geographical mobility have increased absolutely unbelievably. So we've got larger and larger communities, more and more contact. You don't find nearly so many languages spoken in low contact, uh, isolated communities with tightly knit social networks, large amounts of commonly shared, commonly shared information, which I think is important. So given that that is true, I'm supposing that on the whole, languages in the remote past had a good deal more complexity um, than languages today, particularly the standard large modern languages, particularly the European languages like English, but also standard Chinese and so on. And if this trend continues, um, I think that in the future, there are going to be fewer and fewer small isolated languages. Many, you know, as, as I'm sure you agree, the, the biggest tragedy befalling uh, us today culturally is the very rapid disappearance of the majority of human languages. So some people even say that 90% of all human languages are going to disappear in the next 100 years, which is a disaster. But perhaps an even worse disaster is that those that are going to disappear are the languages which are most typical of how human language has been for most of its history. And what's going to be left behind, uh, for the most part, are languages like English, which are the result of hundreds of years of language contact and dialect contact and geographical mobility. And these languages lack the complexity which we've been talking about and um, lack various grammatical devices and various other aspects which must have been much more common in the past. So that's why I'm saying, I mean, the, the book is really a plea to study and find out as much about small isolated languages as we can, because if we don't, it's going to be too late. And once it's too late, then there will be all sorts of things about typical human languages, languages which have been typical of, of the human race for most of its history, which are no longer going to be recoverable. So if you're right, then the task of language documentation becomes even more urgent than, than it otherwise Absolutely, would be. Absolutely, yes. And, and, and of course, the documentation should be uh, precisely on um, the, the, the small isolated languages. And of course it is, because those are the languages which are most likely to die out. Um, but in particular, yeah, documentation and uh, wherever, wherever possible, actually writing a, a complete grammar. Um, I've just been writing about the, this remarkable phenomenon of a small, isolated language. Um, I think you, you may have picked up in the book, I've taken this idea of Tammy Gavon's about uh, societies of intimates. And he, he points out that for nearly all of human history, human societies have been societies of intimates where there were small groups of people living in a relatively limited area where everybody knew everybody else. They had dense social networks and everybody knew the same things. And um, I've been writing about um, this language which has been uh, described by Uri Tadmor, um, which is uh, an, an Austronesian language spoken in uh, Borneo, the Indonesian part of Borneo, called Onya Darat, where... You know, as you'd expect in an Austronesian language, it's got a personal pronoun system with singular, dual, and plural. And the first person plural has the exclusive, inclusive distinction. But it also had this amazing distinction that you pronouns have to be marked for generational affiliation. So singular pronouns indicate the general, generational affiliation of the person you're talking about. These are the yourself. So... There's two different pronouns, one for members of the same generation or younger generation as yourself, and the other is being the pronoun for members of an older generation. And of course, you can't use those correctly unless you actually know the people and know which generation they are. 
because just looking at somebody and guessing how old they are won't necessarily help. So there you are. You know, there's a grammatical category, an important grammatical distinction, generational affiliation, which will only work in a society of a certain size. And Uri Tadmor reckons that this may be the only language in the world which has this distinction. But maybe we'd like to hazard the guess that in prehistory, that sort of system might have been a lot more common. And, of course, if Uri hadn't discovered this particular system, uh, they're now chopping down the rainforests, and so these communities are being destroyed. In 50 years' time, that pronominal system probably won't exist, and we would never have known that this was a possibility in human languages. It's exactly the, the kind of thing that someone might want to say is impossible in yes, human well, languages. Yes, you, well, you're not old enough to remember, but people used to say that object-initial languages were impossible. You know, we had SVO and we had SOV mm. and we had VSO and we had VOS, but there are no languages. I was told that there are no OSV or OBS languages. And then, of course, we started to try and explain why that was. And then suddenly one day in the 1970s, we discovered that this was quite wrong. And again, these object initial languages are spoken in very small communities, which probably will have gone in another hundred years time. Just to pick up on that point about the smaller communities then, um, this is something that crops up in chapter three of the book as well, um, on the emergence of complexity in isolation. So this is not the additive type of complexity, but uh, a more sort of intrinsic type of complexification. You mentioned traditional dialects in this context. What do you think it is about these traditional dialects that makes them such fertile breeding grounds for typological rarities? Or uh, more complex. Yes. Okay. So I mean, the, the question I'm trying to answer in that chapter is, you know, where does linguistic complexity come from in the first place? Uh, it's fairly easy to see how it's lost through adult language learning. It's fairly easy to see how it can be added by borrowing from another language. But where does it come from in the first place? That's to say, um, how do we get the spontaneous creation of linguistic complexity? And of course, in my uh, from my perspective, I'm trying to think about what are the social matrices which uh, permit the development of linguistic complexity. I think it's worth pointing out that I'm not exactly saying fertile breeding ground, I'm, because you, you can't predict that in small, isolated communities you're necessarily going to get complexification. But I think these are the sorts of communities which permit it. You know, they're hospitable to the development of linguistic complexity. And I think that mm. what I say is that in, in small communities uh, with social stability, with dense social networks, without any interference from adult language learning, this is where, given the fullness of time, uh, complexity will develop. Um, and that this is a natural thing which happens to language. Simplification in language is not natural, uh, if that makes sense. It's not the sort of thing that which happens unless there's large amounts of uh, language contact. What happens if languages are left alone, and this is a point that C.J. Bailey made a long time ago, the natural course of events is for those languages to complexify. So um, the small traditional dialect-speaking communities are where complexity. I mean, what I show in the book is that if you look, the, the Germanic languages are great for demonstrating this because we've got major world languages, we've got urban dialects, we've got colonial dialects, uh, we've got new dialects, but at the same time, and we've got small languages like uh, Frisian and Faroese, but at the same time, um, we've all, in, in addition to Frisian and Faroese, we've also got small dialects like the traditional dialects of English, the traditional of German and so on and so you can compare the one with the other and this is not even a question of saying one sort of variety is more complex than another we can say that within recorded history we can plot the development of particular uh, we can plot diachronically the development of complexities in particular varieties and we can only see these sorts of developments in small languages or small dialects and we don't see them in the big metropolitan varieties or the standard varieties of English and German. So I think what it is which makes these small communities um, 
the sorts of societies where this kind of thing is that can happen is that uh, these dialects just develop naturally without any outside interference, without any punctuation, um, but as, as uh, Bob Dixon would say. Um, and many of these complexifications are what Erston Dahl calls mature linguistic phenomena. These are phenomena which take a long time to develop. Um, and so they will only develop if they're left alone for a long time without anything uh, without anything happening of a social nature to disrupt this. So you'll, you'll remember that um, many of these developments that I discuss in the Germanic dialects and languages are in some way or other connected with grammaticalization. And they seem to be the sorts of mm. grammaticalization which um, would be really rather long-term events. So uh, one is the rather remarkable development of the special marking of intransitive infinitives, the development of an inf infinitival intransitive ending on verbs in the some of the dialects of the southwest of England. Um, now, to describe what actually happened would take uh, too long, but it, it does seem to have taken several hundred of years to come to fruition. So, and you're not likely to get that. Mm. We're not likely to get that sort of thing anymore in urban communities or in standard languages because there's just too much stuff going on, too much moving around going on for those sorts of things to happen. And I would encourage our listeners to uh, to check out that bit of the book because it's a very interesting development that we don't have time to fully discuss at the moment. But picking up on this point about the Germanic languages, um, in recent years there's been quite a an explosion of work on Germanic dialect syntax, um, on mapping varieties of Norwegian in particular and Dutch, um, the Scandinavian languages in general. Um, in the book, however, you're mostly talking about morphology with one chapter that's devoted to phonology. Um, and to touch on an area that, that's close to my own heart, I wanted to ask you what you thought about syntax with relation to complexity and, and simplification. Yes, well, uh, uh, as you say, that at the beginning of the book, I say I'm not going to write about syntax in this book uh, because I don't know anything about it. And because it also seems to me that um, syntacticians aren't particularly agreed about what syntactic complexity is. But <laughs> no, That's certainly but fair. Given my starting point that complexity equals L2 difficulty, I think there are some things that can be said. Um, what sort of things do adults find difficult when acquiring the syntax of a, of a foreign language? Okay, well, there's some, you know, in, within the Germanic languages, I think we can say uh, V2, verb second order, is something which is difficult to acquire. Uh, I remember learning German at school, and we had to we, we had to really really practice that. It's the sort of thing which seems to disappear in immigrant communities in in Sweden, for example. So we can say, well, uh, even if the syntacticians can't particularly agree, we look at uh, work the sort that Jack Hawkins is doing currently, for example. We look at work on second language acquisition, and we look at people. Adults acquiring or, or teenagers acquiring Germanic languages like Swedish or German, and we see what sorts of things give them trouble, and then we can say, well, those those things are aspects of complexity. And uh, you mentioned Norwegian. I've just been reading some interesting work by Jan Tadia Forlund and uh, Joe Emmons, uh, who are arguing for the extent of Old Norse influence on Old English syntax. In fact, they, they go so far as to say, well, actually, Middle English is really a North Germanic language uh, rather than the West Germanic language. And then if you query that, they say, well, at least as far as syntax is concerned. Um, but for example, mm. one suggestion is that preposition stranding is something which um, the Scandinavian languages and English have in common, and the other West Germanic languages don't. So if this would be, this would, um, and that is, I think, known to be difficult for uh, adults to acquire. It's an L2 difficult phenomenon. So if, for example, it were, I'm not saying it is, but if it were transferred from Old Norse to Old English and therefore found in Middle English, then you could say that that was a, a very clear sign of additive complexification. 
you know, to go along with the transfer of pronouns from Old Norse to Old English, um, suggesting a long mm. period of stable co-territorial bilingualism between the uh, the North Germanic and the West Germanic speakers in in this country, mm, which seems to to map onto historical reality yes, I as well. So. I mean, certainly there are things. I mean, even I could say things about syntax. I just haven't said them because I didn't feel competent. But I think that's something that maybe uh, we can work on. Mm, there certainly seems to be things to be said. Um, you at one point in the book you devote some pages to replying to criticisms by Campbell and Poser, and they and other scholars have been have long been skeptical of of the kind of explanations or perhaps not to use the term explanations because I know you don't uh, insights that you propose um, and I wanted to know why you thought that was what it is that's about this proposal, about your proposals that makes them unpalatable to people like Campbell and Well, uh, Lyle Campbell's a very good friend of mine, and he's a brilliant linguist, and um, I'm sure he knows far more, more about languages than I do. But he, um, uh, his objection, he actually spells it out. He says, well, that's all very well, but look at this counterexample and that counterexample and that counterexample. And... My what I normally say is that well yes of course there are counterexamples because I'm just talking about tendencies and trends um, and I'm using the word determinant the subtitle of the book is social determinants of linguistic structure I'm using the word determinant in in the sense of a, a factor which influences um, a particular kind of development so there are going to be counterexamples but also. I think people think there are a lot more counterexamples than there really are, because instead of looking at my thesis where I say that there are at least five different social factors which are relevant to my thesis, um, you know, I mentioned them already, stability, contact, networks, information level and, and size, people typically have been looking at just one of them, and more often than not, they've just looked at size, because that's easy to count. So they say, well, it doesn't seem to be any correlation between um, the size of the community and this particular factor, which Trudgill mentioned. Well, no, of course not, because that would only be other things being equal, and other things are very rarely equal, and you'd have to look at the other, uh, the other factors as well. So it comes back to that problem that you mentioned earlier of weighing up things that can be quantified easily against things that can't yes, be quantified and, uh, so and easily. I suppose that's really one reason why I've resisted quantifying anything, uh, in addition to the fact that it would take me far too long. But uh, the fact is that um, uh, you know, if you favour the things which can be quantified, you're going to miss out on a whole lot of things which are equally important, in my view. Mm. So we're running short on time, uh, so I'll just ask you finally, now that this book has, has hit the shelves, um, obviously the, the culmination of quite a long-term ambition, what are your plans for future well, research? Well, um, I had lots of plans uh, for things to write, but I should have predicted, I suppose, that I haven't been able to get around to doing them because actually um, my time is all taken up now with uh, things like you and I are doing now, <laughs> uh, namely talking about the, the most recent book. So, uh, yeah, oh no, I'm absolutely delighted. Um, but I, my, I've made an enormous number of commitments to go and talk about the book or otherwise deal with the book uh, this year and next year. I mean, next year, for example, I already have 20 gigs lined up. Uh, you know, interviews like this, uh, interviews with journalists, giving papers, giving talks, conference presentation, invited conference presentations, and even giving courses. So. I think uh, my immediate plans are to think even more about the content of the book. Uh, you've just provoked me, in, for example, into thinking about, well, maybe now, while the iron is hot, I should strike on the on the syntax front and do some work there, uh, maybe in cooperation with somebody who knows more about syntax than I do. But the, the commitments that I've made are that um, I want to write a relatively popular book let's say, a graduate student book on... Um, I've already started writing it. It's called something like The Long Journey of a Language. And it's going to be a book about the, the spread of English uh, geographically, starting perhaps in the European, Indo-European homeland, wherever that was, and 
plotting its gradual spread westward and and then southward and then across the uh, the North Sea to Britain and so on and then around the world and looking in each case at the linguistic consequences which resulted from these movements and instances of language contact. So you can see there, you know, it's related to, to the book that you and I are talking about now. The other thing I really want to do, and I'm going to do because I don't want anybody else to do it, is uh, to write a book about East Anglian English. So I'm sitting right here in Norwich at the moment, and I plan to write, you know, the definitive work on the English dialects of Norfolk and Suffolk and adjoining areas of uh, Cambridgeshire and uh, Essex over the centuries. And um, I have... Uh, I haven't signed the contract, but I have uh, agreed that I'm going to write such a book. But that that won't be coming out for a few years yet, I'm afraid. Mm. Well, it sounds like a very worthwhile project. Um, for now, though, our time is up. So I will just conclude by saying thank you very much for your time today. And thank you very much. We've been talking to Peter Trudkill about his book, Social Linguistic Typology. This is George Walton for New Books in Language, saying thank you for listening.